I am Bob Kieser, and this is the Son of Man Urantia Project. Today's episode is chapter 36 at Caesarea Philippi. Before Jesus and the apostles left for Caesarea Philippi, he wanted to meet with his family. David Zebedee, using his messengers, arranged with Jude, Jesus' brother, for the entire family, Mary and all of his brothers and sisters, to meet Jesus at his boat shop in Capernaum on Sunday, August 7th. They all had full intentions of meeting with Jesus, and Jesus, with Peter and Andrew, went to keep this appointment. That same day, a group of Pharisees, who knew that Jesus was staying in Philip's lands on the other side of the lake, decided to show up at Mary's house and try to pressure her into telling them more about Jesus' whereabouts. Mary became upset when they tried to get her to talk. And when the Pharisees, Pharisees knew or saw how nervous everyone else in the family was, they correctly figured that Jesus must be coming for a visit. So they sent a messenger for reinforcements, and the rest of them hid in the house to wait for Jesus. Because of this, and even though both Jude and Ruth tried a couple of times unsuccessfully to sneak out and let Jesus know what was happening, the family decided not to try and meet with Jesus. Early that afternoon, one of David's messengers caught up with Jesus and told him what was happening. And so, through no fault of either, Jesus and his family were not able to see each other. The Temple Tax Collector Jesus, Peter, and Andrew were hanging out by the lake near Zebedee's boat shop when a tax collector for the temple showed up. Getting Peter aside, this guy asked him, Does not your master pay the temple tax? Peter was about to flare up at the suggestion that Jesus, Jesus should be expected to support the religion of his sworn enemies. But seeing the look on the tax collector's face, Peter realized it was a trap. They wanted to catch Jesus in the act of refusing to pay the normal half-shekel to support the temple in Jerusalem. So Peter said, Why, of course the master pays the temple tax. You wait here by the gate, and I'll be back soon with the tax. Now Peter had spoken without thinking. Judas had their money and he was across the lake. Neither Peter, his brother, nor Jesus had any money. And knowing that the Pharisees were looking for them, they couldn't go into Bethsaida to get any. When Peter told Jesus about the tax collector and that he had promised to pay him, Jesus said, If you have promised, then you should pay. But how will you keep your promise? Will you become a fisherman again so that you can honor your word? Regardless, Peter, under the circumstances, 
It is good that we pay the tax. Let us not give these men a reason to get mad at us. We will wait here while you take the boat and fish. And after you have sold them at that market down yonder, pay the tax collector for all three of us. One of David's secret messengers, who had been standing nearby, heard all of this conversation. He signaled to another secret messenger, who was fishing on the shore, to rush over. Just as Peter was ready to cast off, these two messengers showed up with several large baskets of fish and helped him carry them to the fish buyer on shore. Between what he was paid for the fish and what one of the messengers had on him, there was enough money to pay the temple tax for Jesus, Peter, and Andrew. The tax collector took the payment, and he did not charge them a late penalty because they had been out of Galilee for a while. It is not strange that you have a record of Peter catching a fish with a shekel in its mouth. In those days, there were many stories about finding treasures in fishes' mouths. Tales of near miracles like that were normal. And it just so happened that as Peter left Jesus and Andrew to go fish, Jesus, half in humor, said, It is strange that the sons of the king must pay a tax. Usually it is the stranger who is taxed for the upkeep of the court. But it benefits us not to upset the authorities. Go on. Maybe you will catch the fish with a shekel in its mouth. With Jesus having said this, and Peter showing up so quickly with the temple tax, it's not surprising that the man who wrote Matthew's Gospel turned it into a miracle. Jesus, with Peter and Andrew, waited by the seashore until nearly sundown. Messengers told them that Mary's house was still being watched. So, when it grew dark, the three got in their boat and slowly rowed away toward the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. At Bethsaida, Julius. On Monday, August 8th, while Jesus and the twelve apostles were camped in Magadan Park near Bethsaida, Julius, the evangelist, the women's corps, and more than 100 believers came over from Capernaum for a conference. And many of the Pharisees, learning that Jesus was there, also came. By this time, some of the Sadducees had joined with the Pharisees to entrap Jesus. Before going into the conference with the believers, which was closed to everyone else, Jesus held a public meeting. The Pharisees were there, and they heckled Jesus and tried to upset the gathering. The leader of these guys said, Teacher, we want you to give us a sign that you are authorized to teach. And then, when we see it, everyone will know that you have been sent by God. And Jesus said, When it is evening, you say, 
it will be fair weather, for the heaven is red. In the morning, it will be foul weather, for the heaven is red and lowering. When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say showers will come. When the wind blows from the south, you say scorching heat will come. How is it that you see the face of heaven so well, but you are so completely unable to see the signs of the times? To those who would know the truth, a sign has already been given. But to an evil-minded and hypocritical generation, no sign will be given. After Jesus said this, he went and started to get ready for the conference with his followers. At the meeting, they decided that after Jesus and the twelve got back from Caesarea Philippi, they would all come together for a group mission into all the cities and villages in the Decapolis. Jesus helped them to plan this mission, and as he was ending the meeting, he said, I am telling you, beware of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Do not be deceived by their strong loyalty to the rules of their religion and their confidence in how much they think they know. Only concern yourself with the spirit of living truth and the power of true religion. It is not fearing a dead religion that will save you, but rather your faith in the living experience of the spiritual realities of the kingdom. Do not allow yourselves to become blinded by prejudice and paralyzed by fear. Do not let reverence or tradition warp your understanding so much that your eyes cannot see and your ears cannot hear. It is not the purpose of true religion to bring peace, but instead to ensure progress. And there can be no peace in the heart or progress in the mind unless you fall completely in love with truth, the ideals of eternal realities. The issues of life and death are being set before you the sinful pleasures of time against the righteous realities of eternity. Even now, you should start to find deliverance from the bondage of fear and doubt as you enter the new life of faith and hope. And when the feelings of service for your fellow men arise in your soul, do not stifle them. When the emotions of love for your neighbor well up in your heart, Express those urges intelligently to meet the real needs of others. Peter's Confession Caesarea Philippi was the capital of Philip's lands. He was the Roman tetrarch or ruler of that region. The city was nestled in a beautiful charming valley between some scenic hills where the Jordan River flowed out of an underground cave. Mount Hermon could be seen to the north, and from the hills south of the city, a person had a magnificent view of the upper Jordan and the Sea of Galilee. Jesus and the twelve apostles left Magadan Park for Caesarea Philippi on Tuesday morning.
Jesus had his experience of trial and triumph on Mount Hermon earlier in his career. And now that he was entering into the final phase of his time on earth, he wanted to return with his apostles so that they might get a new vision of their responsibilities and gain new strength for the trying times ahead. As they walked along, about the time that they were passing south of the waters of Mermon, the apostles started talking among, them, among themselves about their recent time in Phoenicia and their experiences with the people and how they were receiving Jesus. When they stopped to take a break for lunch, everyone sat around under the shade of the mulberry trees. Jesus had been training his apostles for many months about the kingdom of heaven. Now he knew it was time to teach them about himself and his relationship to the kingdom. Jesus suddenly confronted his 12 apostles, and for the first time ever, he asked them a question about himself. He said, Who do men say that I am? This was to be one of the most significant lectures Jesus ever gave the 12. Most of the apostles gave a shot at answering Jesus' question. He was variously seen as a prophet or an extraordinary man by everyone who knew him. Even his enemies feared him and said he got his power from the prince of devils. They said that some of the people in Judea and Samaria, those who had not met Jesus personally, thought that he was the resurrected John the Baptist. Peter told him that at times he was compared to Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. After listening to his apostles, Jesus got up and stood tall in front of the twelve who were sitting around him in a semicircle. The apostles were startled as Jesus, with great emphasis, swept his hand in a gesture that included all of them and said, But who do you say that I am? The atmosphere was tense as they all sat in silence for a moment, never taking their eyes off of Jesus. Then Simon Peter jumped up and cried out, You are the Deliverer, the Son of the Living God. And the other eleven apostles, all at the same time, jumped to their feet, letting Jesus know that Peter had spoken for everyone. Jesus remained standing and motioned for them all to sit down again. When they had, he said, This has been revealed to you by my Father. The hour has come when you should know the truth about me. But for the time being, I order you, tell no man about this. Let us continue on our way. And so they continued walking to Caesarea Philippi, arriving late that evening. They went to the home of a man named Celis, who was expecting them. The apostles were restless that night. They got little sleep. They all sensed that a great event had just happened in their lives. 
and in the work of the kingdom. The talk about the kingdom. Because of what they witnessed when Jesus was baptized by John and how in Cana he had turned the water into wine, the apostles had at times pretty much accepted that Jesus was the Messiah. And at times, some of them even thought that he was the expected deliverer. But as soon as they would hope something like this, Jesus would come along with some crushing word or disappointing deed and dash those ideas to pieces. All of them had, for a long time, been struggling with the conflict in their mind between what they had been taught about the expected Messiah and their actual experience of living with this extraordinary man. The apostles got together for lunch in Celis's garden later that Wednesday evening or morning. The night before, Simon Peter and Simon Zelotes had been trying hard to convince the others to accept Jesus not only as the Messiah, but also as the divine Son of the living God. These two Simons were in agreement about Jesus, and they were not letting up until everyone else agreed with them. Andrew was still the boss, but his brother, Simon Peter, was quickly becoming the chosen spokesperson for the twelve. They were all sitting in the garden when Jesus showed up about noon. The twelve, all dignified and solemn, stood up as Jesus walked toward them. His friendly smile, the one he often wore when his crew was taking themselves or something else way too seriously, relieved their tension. Jesus commanded them with his hands to sit back down. At that point, the apostles realized that Jesus was not comfortable with them getting up every time that he came into the room, that he did not approve of that kind of outward respect. So that was the last time that they ever did so. After everyone had eaten, and they were all sitting around talking over their plans about their next mission around the Decapolis, Jesus, all of a sudden, looked into their faces and said, Now that a full day has passed since you agreed with Simon Peter about who I am, do you still believe that? The twelve all stood up, and then Simon Peter stepped forward and said, Yes, Master, we do. We believe that you are the Son of the living God. And then Peter sat down with the others. Jesus remained standing and said, You are my chosen ambassadors. But I also know that, under the circumstances, you could not believe this, that I am the Son of God, just from mere human knowledge. This event is a revelation of my Father's Spirit to your souls. And since you are making this confession about the Spirit of God inside of you, 
and that that spirit of God has led you to do this, I can now publicly state that this is the foundation on which I will build the brotherhood of the kingdom of men. On this rock of spiritual reality, I will build the living temple of spiritual fellowship in my Father's kingdom. All of the forces of evil and all of the hosts of sin will not win against the divine spirit's human brotherhood. And while my Father's spirit will always be the mentor and the divine guide of everyone who enters this spiritual fellowship, to you, And to those who come after you, I am now giving the keys of the outward kingdom, the authority over things temporal and the social and economic aspects of this group in the kingdom. And again, Jesus told them that for the time being, they were to tell no one that he was the Son of God. Jesus was beginning to have faith in the loyalty and integrity of his apostles. He realized that a faith that could withstand what they had recently passed through would, without doubt, endure the fiery trials that were just ahead. He knew they would emerge from the apparent dashing of all of their hopes into the new light of a new dispensation. And because of that, they would be able to go out to enlighten the world sitting in darkness. This faith he held for all of his apostles, except one. And ever since that day, Jesus has continued building this living temple on that same eternal foundation of his divine sonship. And those who become self-conscious sons of God are the human stones that make up this living temple of sonship erected to the glory, wisdom, and love of God the Father. When Jesus was done speaking, he told the twelve to go off by themselves in the hills until supper time to look for wisdom, strength, and spiritual guidance. And they did as Jesus asked. The New Concept What was both new and important in Peter's statement about Jesus was its clear recognition that Jesus was the Son of God, his unquestioned divinity. Ever since his baptism and the wedding at Cana, the apostles had at times thought of him as the Messiah. But it was not part of the Jewish idea of the national deliverer that he would be divine. The Jews did not teach that the Messiah would be divine. He was to be the anointed or the gifted one. But in no way had they thought of him being the actual son of God. In the second statement, more emphasis was placed on his combined nature, the extraordinary fact that he was the son of man and the son of God. It was on this great truth, the coming together of his human and divine natures, that Jesus said he would build the kingdom of heaven. Jesus had wanted to live his life on earth and complete his bestowal mission 
as the Son of Man. But his followers were conditioned to think of him as the expected Messiah. Knowing that he could never fulfill those expectations, he tried to modify their concept of the Messiah so he could at least in part meet their beliefs. But now he understood that would not work. So he boldly decided on a third plan, to agree that Peter was right, to openly announce his divinity, and to tell the twelve that he was a son of God. For three years, Jesus had been telling everyone that he was the son of man, while at the same time the apostles had increasingly insisted that he was the expected Jewish Messiah. He now revealed to them that he was the Son of God, and on that idea of the combined nature of the Son of Man and the Son of God, he intended to build the kingdom of heaven. He had decided to stop trying to convince them that he was not the Messiah. He told them what he is, and then he ignored their insistence on thinking of him as the Messiah. The next afternoon, Jesus and the apostles stayed at Celsus house for another day, waiting for Zebedee's messengers to show up with some money. After Jesus lost his popularity, their income fell off. By the time they reached Caesarea Philippi, they were broke. Matthew did not want to leave Jesus and the others like this, but he did not have any of his own money to donate like he had so many times in the past. But David Zebedee had thought ahead and prepared for them running out of money. He had told his messengers that, as they made their way through Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, they were to collect donations to be sent to Jesus and his apostles. So by evening, David's messengers showed up with enough money to get them all through until they took off for their mission through the Decapolis. Matthew, who was selling his last piece of property in Capernaum, expected to have his money by that time, and he had arranged for it to be given to Judas without anybody knowing about it. None of the apostles had a very good understanding of Jesus' divinity. They did not realize that this was the beginning of a new period in Jesus' time on earth. He was now entering the period when the teacher-healer was becoming the new idea of the Messiah, the Son of God. From this time on, a new theme came forth in Jesus' message. His one ideal of living was revealing the Father, and his one idea in teaching was to personify for the universe, in other words, to show the universe through how he lived his life, the supreme wisdom that can only, that can only be understood by living it. Jesus came so that we could all have life and live it more abundantly. Jesus now entered into the fourth or last stage of his life as a human. The first stage was his childhood, 
the years when he was only dimly conscious of his origin, nature, and destiny as a human being. The second stage was his growing self-consciousness as he became a man, and when he came to more clearly understand his divine nature and human mission. This second stage ended with the experience of and the revelations associated with his baptism. The third stage of Jesus' earth experience went from the baptism through the years of his ministry as teacher and healer and up to this historic point where Peter makes his statement about Jesus at Caesarea Philippi. This third period of his life took in the times when his apostles and his immediate followers knew him as the Son of Man and thought of him as the Messiah. The fourth and last period of his earth career began here at Caesarea Philippi and continued on until the crucifixion. This stage of his work took in his last year on earth when he acknowledged his divinity. During the fourth period, while most of his followers still thought of him as the Messiah, he became known to the apostles as the Son of God. Peter's statement marked the beginning of the apostles starting to realize, at least hazily, that Jesus was on earth for an entire universe. In this way, Jesus showed through his life what he taught in his religion, the growth of the spiritual nature through living progress. He did not place emphasis, as did his later followers, on the never-ending struggle between the soul and the body. Instead, he taught that the spirit could easily win over both and was effective in reconciling this intellectual, instinctual warfare. A new meaning became attached to all of Jesus' teaching from this point forward. Before Caesarea Philippi, he presented the gospel as its master teacher. After Caesarea Philippi, he was not only a teacher, but also the divine representative of the Eternal Father, who is the sum total of this spiritual kingdom. And Jesus was required to do all of this as a human being, the Son of Man. Jesus had been sincere in trying to lead his followers into the spiritual kingdom as a teacher, and then as a teacher-healer, but they would not have it so. He knew full well that his mission on earth could not possibly meet the expectations that the Jewish people had for the Messiah. The prophets in ancient times had described a Messiah that he could never be. He tried to establish the Father's kingdom as the Son of Man, but his followers would not go forward in the adventure. Jesus, seeing this, then elected to meet his believers part way, and in doing so he prepared himself to openly assume the role of the bestowed Son of God. Accordingly, the apostles heard a lot that was new as Jesus talked to them in the garden, and some of these things sounded strange, even to them. 
Among other surprises, Jesus said the following. From now on, if any man wants to join us, he has to assume the obligations of sonship and follow me. And when I am not with you anymore, do not think that the world will treat you any better than it did me. If you love me, prepare to prove this love by your willingness to make the supreme sacrifice. And mark well my words. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The Son of Man did not come to be ministered to, but to rather minister and bestow his life as the gift for everyone. I am telling you that I have come to look for and to save those who are lost. No man in this world right now sees the Father, except the Son who came from the Father. But if the Son is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. And everyone who believes this truth of the combined nature of the Son will be given life that is eternal. We cannot yet tell people openly that the Son of Man is the Son of God. But it has been revealed to you. That is why I boldly speak to you about these mysteries. Though I stand before you in this physical presence, I came from God the Father. Before Abraham was, I am. I did come from the Father into this world as you have known me. And I am telling you that I must soon leave this world and return to my Father's work. And now, can your faith understand these facts in the face of my warning that the Son of Man will not meet your Father's expectations of the Messiah? My kingdom is not of this world. Can you believe the truth about me in the face of the fact that, though the foxes have holes and the birds of heaven have nests, I have nowhere to lay my head? Regardless, I am telling you that the Father and I are one. He who has seen me has seen the Father. My Father is working with me in all of these things, and He will never leave me alone in my mission, just like I will never abandon you when you soon go out to tell the people about this new gospel across the world. And now, have I brought you apart with me and by yourselves for a little while so that you can understand the glory and grasp the grandeur of the life to which I have called you. The faith adventure of establishing the Father's kingdom in the hearts of mankind and my living presence with the souls of everyone who believes this gospel. The apostles listened to these bold and startling statements in silence. They were stunned and broke off into small groups to talk and think about what Jesus said. They had confessed that he was the Son of God, but they could not grasp the full meaning of what they had been led to do. Andrew's Conference That evening, Andrew took it on himself to have a personal talk with each of the other apostles. And these talks went well with everyone 
except Judas Iscariot. Andrew had never been as close with Judas as he was with the other apostles. And because of that, he had never thought much about the fact that Judas had never really opened himself up to him, the head of the apostles. But now, Andrew was so worried about Judas that, later that night after everyone was fast asleep, he went and told Jesus. And Jesus said, It is not wrong, Andrew, that you have come to me about this. But there is nothing more that we can do except continue to place full confidence in this apostle and say nothing to the others about this talk with me. And that was all Andrew could get out of Jesus. There had always been something strange or a little off between Judas, a Judean, and his Galilean friends. Judas had been shocked by the death of John the Baptist, severely hurt when Jesus scolded him on several occasions, disappointed when Jesus refused to be made king, humiliated when Jesus fled from the Pharisees, irked when Jesus refused to accept the Pharisees' challenge to show them a sign, bewildered by Jesus' refusal to resort to miracles, and now, more recently, depressed by the fact that they had no money. And Judas missed the excitement of having all of the people around. Each of the other apostles was, in some way, going through these same trials and tribulations. But they loved Jesus. At least they must have loved him more than Judas did because they went through with him all the way to the bitter end. Being from Judea, Judas took personal offense at Jesus' recent warning to the apostles to beware of the Pharisees. He tended to think it was a hidden reference to himself. But Judas's great mistake was that every time when Jesus would send his apostles off by themselves to pray, Judas, instead of talking with the spiritual forces of the universe, let his mind become fearful, tended to doubt Jesus' mission, and gave in to his tendency to hold on to feelings of revenge. And now, Jesus was going to take his apostles along with him to Mount Hermon, where he intended to start the fourth phase of his time on earth as the Son of God. Some of the apostles were at his baptism in the Jordan, and they had witnessed the beginning of his career as the Son of Man. Now, he wanted some of them to hear him assume the new and public role of a Son of God. So, on the morning of Friday, August 12, Jesus said to the twelve, Pack some food and water and get ready to head up to that yonder mountain where Spirit wants me to go and receive what I need to finish my work on earth. And I am taking all of you with me so that you can be strengthened for the trying times ahead.
Okay, everyone, that's it for chapter 36 at Caesarea Philippi. I think that is also going to be the end of volume two, since we're starting on Jesus's fourth period on earth. Next up in a few days is chapter 37, the Mount of Transfiguration. Defend liberty. Protect your kids. Find some way to get out there and serve man for nothing more or less than the sake of God. Bobby Keezer, out here.